please turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 4. First Corinthians four. And then we'll also turn the back of our hymnals to page nine thirty-six for the uh, reading of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But first, God's word is first here. Let's uh, read 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. This is God's holy and infallible word. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not uh, by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, And then each man's praise will come um, to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you may become arrogant in uh, behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And we'll turn to uh, the Confession of Faith. This is the chapter 27 on the sacraments. And um, we're actually going to be looking at sections 4 and 5. Section 4. There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word, lawfully ordained. The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. Let's pray. Help us, we ask, O Lord, to understand your holy word, but to understand especially as well um, this summary of what we believe Scripture teaches, to learn of the nature of sacraments and the wonders of your holy uh, grace given unto us through your sacraments and through your ordinances of your church. Help us, we pray, for we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> now, some of you may be familiar with this because you came out of the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> but the Roman Church actually has seven sacraments. Seven sacraments. I have them listed here. Um, the first is baptism. The second is the Eucharist. 
Now, the Eucharist is the Lord's Supper, so you could say we agree with the first two, right? We agree with baptism and the Lord's Supper. But then they go on and add even more confirmation, confession, which is also called penance. Uh, actually, I, I, there's even a third name for that one, reconciliation, the, the uh, sacrament of reconciliation. That's where you confess your sins to the priest. You need that to be reconciled with God, they say. The anointing of the sick, which is also called lash rites, marriage, and ordination. These are all considered the seven sacraments of the church. And one of the councils of the church has, has kept these as being seven sacraments ever since uh, perhaps like the 1500s. Now, why is it that the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments? Now, the next big follow-up question to that, why is where is the scriptural ground or the scriptural warrant? Where is the warrant from the Bible to have these seven sacraments? I, I would say that being Presbyterian and being a part of the OPC is a delightful thing. To be a people of the book that if we are going to have some practice in the church, whether an ordinance, a sacrament, whatever it may be, it is in accordance to the word. And that's what I do love about uh, Presbyterianism, that we let the scriptures be a guide for our daily lives. The scriptures are to be a guide for how we are to think and especially how we are to worship and how the church ought to function. I believe that is the sincere endeavor of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and other like-minded uh, sister denominations. A careful examination by the Westminster Assembly um, came up with this statement regarding the number of sacraments in section 4. There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So from what the Westminster Assembly decided was that Scripture only gives us two sacraments. Now, some of the seven sacraments that's included in, the, uh, the, in the, um, the list from the Roman Catholic Church, I believe it's there <coughs> because of a confusion between what you would call a sacrament and an ordinance, or you could say a holy rite, um, something that is done in the church as a religious practice. Um, um, according, before we go on in that, I'm going to explain what is an ordinance, okay? How does a sacrament different, differ from an ordinance? Now, this is a little confusing because I'm going to give you a quotation by a, a scholar, A.A. Uh, a. Hodge, Dr. A.A. A. Hodge, where he uses the word ordinance when I believe it would be better for him to use the word sacrament in that case. But according to Dr. Beakey, a more modern author, he says, By ordinances, the confession refers to the public means of worship, which Christ ordained or commanded, such as baptism, the Lord's Supper. Okay, those are sacraments, right? But it's also public prayer, the singing of praises to God. Okay, so those are ordinances, um, but some of those things are not sacraments, right? Okay. Now, he says that it's restricted to those things. Now, if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
in this, uh, we're not going to turn there, but it's actually here in your outline, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 31, section 2, it gives us a broader definition of the word ordinance. It belongeth to synods and councils, ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, if consonant, or you could say in agreement to the word of God. And councils are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. Now that's a very different usage of the word ordinance. Okay, what's the ordinance in God's word whereby we are to have councils and councils when they give us a scriptural um, proclamation of some sort or they, they, they testify something unto the church that we are to be in agreement with them for the, and that we are to let the council settle this matter of conscience, this matter of faith. Well, the ordinance is something in Scripture. What's the ordinance? Acts 15. There's a council in Acts 15 called the Jerusalem Council, and then when the church had problems, individual congregations went to the, the greater, bigger body of, uh, the, of the government of the church. The representatives were sent from the various churches to have, you could say, the first general assembly of the New Testament. And that council made a statement, and then all the churches would receive it. So you could say, the fact that we're Presbyterian and we have a connectionalism in government is an ordinance of God, because God's word gives it as an example. It's not a proper practice to have individual lone congregations with no connection to other congregations, which is very common in evangelicalism today. The word ordinance comes from the Latin word ordinaire, which means to put in order. So I would like to define an ordinance as something laid out in Scripture that we seek to follow in the church. That's an ordinance. Something laid out in Scripture that we seek to follow in the church. Um, an example um, is when Paul goes to, um, Paul is talking to Titus. And Titus is on the Isle of Crete. And the church in Crete is, is in a, it's kind of needing some work, Right? They got some uh, lazy gluttons and they got a bunch of other people that are not following what they should follow. And how are you going to straighten out a church like that? Well, Paul's answer for Titus was go to the cities on, in, on the Isle of Crete and go and ordain el- elders in every church. And by ordaining elders, that, that's one of the things that God is going to use to build up the church. And that those ordination or those ordaining of elders, that would be an ordinance because he's setting things in order and he's ordaining people. So that's, that, that's why I'm saying here that the, the Roman Catholic Church confuses an ordinance with a sacrament. Scripture gives an, an ordinance. It gives us a warrant for ordination of, of officials. Uh, you could say elders. Well, we believe elders are deacons, ruling elders, teaching elders, or you could say ruling elders and gospel ministers. Okay? There's an, that would be an ordinance. An, an, an ordination service, we could say, it would be an ordinance. Something 
that is done in accordance to the word, in accordance with the word that is ordained by God. Marriage, you could say, is a holy ordinance instituted by God, but it's not a sacrament. Well, that's why there's this confusion between ordinance and sacrament. I, I really was surprised to read this, but I, I read that in uh, evangelical circles, some of the modern evangelicals today don't even want to use the word sacrament. Well, maybe it sounds too Roman Catholic. So they would rather just call everything ordinances. I was, I was surprised for that. Um, but I hope you would agree that there is something more weighty spiritually. There is something more significant to a sacrament. Because a sacrament is like, it's the visible presentation of the gospel. The baptism is a visible presentation of the gospel. Uh, the Lord's Supper, Supper is a visible presentation of the gospel. And there is a spiritual reality behind those sacraments that are very significant. And it's not just a memorial. There's, in the Lord's Supper, there's a real, true presence of Christ. Now, some of the sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, again, I believe it's a confusion of terms, the difference between a rite, or a religious practice uh, done by a religious leader, a rite, an ordinance, and a sacrament, where everything's just kind of bundled under sacraments. However, there is one sacrament in particular of the Roman Catholic Church that is outright, I believe, contrary to the gospel. Totally divorced from any um, warrant in Holy Scripture, and that's the sacrament of confession or penance. It says that Jesus Christ cannot be your only mediator. We must be there as well. Jesus is not the only mediator. You need a, another mediator, your priest. Because you can't go and pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ. You must come. Your, your sins have to be confessed to us and that we can bring that, those, those sins unto the, unto the Lord through Jesus. Therefore, they're adding mediators between God and man. Now, speaking of the two sacraments, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that there are two sacraments. Section 4 goes on to say, neither of which, baptism and the Lord's Supper, may be dispensed by any but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. Now, dispensed, uh, like a dispenser, a water dispenser, something that gives out water. Uh, I, I, I guess maybe another term would be officiated. Let's plug that in there. Neither of which may be officiated by any, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. And that's why I read that passage from 1 Corinthians 4. And I have it, uh, the two first verses printed there. And the OPC uses this verse here as a proof text for why gospel ministers are the ones to carry out the sacraments. Look at that again. It says, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So the Greek word here, <coughs> the Greek word in this text 
translated as servants, could be translated as ministers. Okay? Let a man regard us in this manner as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is a manager. So, uh, one interpretation of this particular uh, text is that it's the ministers, the gospel ministers, that are to be those who are the stewards or the ones to manage the mysteries of God. Now, when we talk about the mysteries of God, um, there's a few ways to understand that. That's the, the, the revealed mysteries of God in the Holy Word, but also the sacraments as being part of those mysteries of God. Now, and again, the OPC uses that as a proof text um, for why ministers are to be the ones who are to carry out um, the sacraments. Now, A.A. Hodge wrote this, Dr. A.A. Hodge, but since the church is organized as a society under laws executed by regularly, regularly appointed officers, it is evident that ordinances, I like the word sacraments here better, which are badges of church membership, seals of the covenant formed by the great head of the church with his living members can properly be administered only by the highest legal officers of the church. Now, that's an argument probably you could say from logic rather than from scripture. But that's the argument of Dr. A. A. Hodge. Um, Section 5 says that the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. Now that's kind of similar to what we read earlier. Um... In um, section two, now, we're not, we're gonna, I'm going to cite that in a little bit. That section two, quoted by another author. But um, so, what, what this section is saying, to make it very plain, it's saying two things: that Old Testament circumcision has become the New Testament baptism. That's what it's saying, and that the Old Testament Passover has become the New Testament Lord's Supper. And there's scriptural proof for those, for both of these. Let's look at this, um, the, the first text of proof that the Old Testament circumcision has become the New Testament baptism. Uh, especially Romans 4 really gives us some of the notion of the necessity of faith, first and foremost. Um, Acts, I'm sorry, Romans 4, starting in verse 8. Um. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Um, Is the blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Um, I'm actually missing a section of my my scripture here in in my uh, Bible. It says, How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And then he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. 
so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to him, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow the steps of the father of our, uh, the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Okay, first of all, if you have faith in Christ, you have the same faith as Father Abraham. If you have faith in Christ, you have the same faith as Father Abraham. Abraham looked forward unto Christ. It wasn't that Abraham was saved because he was circumcised. He came to faith and saving faith before he was circumcised. But notice, it talks about circumcision having some of the same qualities that we define as what a sacrament does. Verse 11, it talks about circumcision acting as both a seal. It says it acts as a seal, a sign and a seal there in verse 11. And that's what we believe our sacraments do as well. They act as both uh, signs and seals. All right. Now, the more clear passage, I would say, that talks about um, this relation would be going to 2nd, I'm sorry, Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 11. And we read, I believe we read this uh, this morning. Uh, verse 10, we'll start at verse 10. And in him, speaking of Jesus, in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." Um, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Okay, it goes on starting with circumcision. Then it goes into baptism. Then it goes back into circumcision. It's, it's basically, it's just... It's going back and forth, relating the two, almost as it's the same thing. And a lot of scholars look at this particular text, and they say that this is a clear passage where Paul is, is basically integrating the notion of baptism into uh, what's taught here about circumcision. Of course, we know that circumcision is no longer to be used as religious rite. You remember uh, in, in the epistle to the Galatians, when some required that they must have circumcision to be saved, Paul rebuked them as having departed from the Holy Gospel. That they were making a sac an Old Testament sacrament which had been subseded, which had been taken over really by baptism, and still making it a requirement, an extra biblical re requirement. Paul sternly rebuked those in Galatia for that. Okay, so 
The next thing is that the Old Testament Passover has become the New Testament Lord's Supper. And for there, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Six through eight, which says, "Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." I wrote you in my early in my letter. My I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not. Um, I did not mean all. Uh, I did not mean all uh, the immoral people of this world, but with the covetous, swindlers, or idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. All right. So let me uh, let me pick this up a little bit more. Oh yeah. I'm I'm sorry. I really should have started reading at uh, verse seven. So we'll look at uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. Okay. What a more... You can't find a more clear passage than this saying that Jesus Christ is our Passover. Okay? So if Jesus Christ is our Passover, the Lamb of God, slain for our sins, if Jesus Christ is our Passover, then why would we still celebrate the Old Testament Passover? Well, Jesus Christ is our Passover. He is the bread and the wine. The bread and wine represent what Jesus Christ has done for us. Therefore, we don't have to celebrate Passover any longer because Jesus Christ in him has fulfilled the Passover. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is the replacement, you could say, of the Old Testament Passover. Um, I want to read one section from G.I. Williamson on this matter. And uh, the first time I read this, I actually wrote on the side of the book, Wow, um, I, was, I was really surprised at this. He says this, and this is going to get back to section 2, which we studied earlier. The Apostle Paul sometimes uses the name of an Old Testament sacrament when speaking about those who have literally received the New Testament sacrament. Is Paul confused? No, I don't think so. Um, he's... He says the Israelites were baptized, 1 Corinthians 10.2, whereas, of course, they were actually circumcised. He also says the Colossians were circumcised, Colossians 2.11, which we just read, though, in fact, they were actually baptized. He speaks of the Corinthians as having the Passover, 1 Corinthians 5.7. Though we know that it was the Lord's Supper and not the Passover that they observed among them. The Passover became the Lord's Supper once and for all on the night in which the Lord was betrayed. Matthew 26 and Luke 22. So the question then is this. 
how are we to explain this interchange of sacramental terminology in the New Testament? We believe this is the true explanation. <coughs> Here he's citing section 2 of the Confession in this chapter. A spiritual relation between the sign and the thing signified, which, when it comes to pass, that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. This means that there is such a relationship between sacrament and grace that we may speak of the sacrament as if it were the grace and vice versa. The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified were for substance the same with those of the new. I know that's a little bit complex, but I, I find it fascinating that Paul is, is he's going back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament sacraments. Now, what if Paul didn't? What if Paul didn't have this back and forth exchange in comparing them as, as almost the same thing? Well, we probably would have more theologians arguing and saying, well, I'm not really sure if circumcision was replaced by baptism. But I believe we find that the case is clear. Um, one of the reasons why I chose this closing hymn, uh, The God of Abram Praise, is that we have a continuity with that of the Old Testament saints. Their sacraments were, the means of, were a means of grace. Our sacraments are a means of grace. But we have... Uh, we don't have to worry about circumcision any longer because it's been replaced by baptism. We don't have to worry about keeping the Passover because Jesus Christ is our Passover. And we, in the Lord's Supper, have something that is the fulfillment of that holy Passover in Christ. Uh, let's close in prayer. Well, God, we ask that you would bless this, your holy word, unto us. Help us to rejoice in what you have taught us by your word. Help us to rejoice in the teaching of Holy Scripture. Help us not to be confused by uh, those who uh, call themselves Messianic Jewish Christians who um, would say that we still need to practice the Old Testament rites and the Old Testament feast days and the Old Testament Passover. We thank you, blessed Lord, that Jesus Christ is our Passover, the Passover lamb uh, given for our sins. And Lord, as we we close, we pray that you would help us to grow in our appreciation of our church and to grow in appreciation of your holy word and that faith once delivered to the saints. Help us and bless and keep us, for we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's stand and sing our closing hymn, uh, 234, The God of Abram Praise.